Please remain standing and pray with me. Father, we come to you this morning humbled by the grace you have shown to us in your Son, Jesus. And we pray that you would send your Spirit this morning to empower us to be faithful servants. Servants with resiliency. Servants who remain vigilant even while the master of the house is gone. And so we do pray, God, that you would send your spirit, empower the preaching of your word, soften our hearts to receive what you have for us this morning, and transform us this day ever so slightly more into the image of your son, Jesus. We lift this up to you. Amen. You may be seated. Well, I don't know if, uh, now I, I, full disclosure, I was scheduled to preach this morning anyways, but uh, if Ben picks a, a week to get sick or a series of weeks to get sick, he has shingles, by the way, uh, and it's going to be out of commission maybe for a week or two, uh, he has picked the right time in the lectionary to be absent. Uh, so we're encountering, what, week two of four of significant passages, passages around eschatology, around the coming of the Lord, around judgment. You know, the kind of passages we all long to hear every morning when we come to church. And so, Ben, uh, you know, the Lord be with you. But seriously, though, shingles are horrible, and uh, he's in a lot of pain. So do pray for him uh, and Lisa. So when I was growing up, and this might have been true with some of you, on occasion I would do something wrong. I'm not saying that happened frequently, but it was. you might be surprised to hear that. But occasionally I'd do something wrong. And this would usually involve... Something around the torturing of my sister in some way. Now, as a result of that, in my house, my dad said, spanking. It's time for you to receive a spanking. And he was the one who administered such judgment. And it would usually come in the form of my dad telling me to go to my room and wait. Now, that could be anywhere from 20 minutes uh, to about uh, maybe two hours, three hours. It would be a while. And I don't know if that waiting was for me or for him to calm down. But he told me to go and wait. It was horrible. I hated the waiting. I despised it. I desired the swift execution of judgment. I wanted it to get over. I didn't want to wait. And there's this one time I distinctly remember when I was around eight years old. I'd done something wrong. Dad said, go to your room, wait for the punishment that's coming. And I went and I wait. And as soon as I entered my room, light bulb moment. You know, you've had these, right? And I looked at my underwear drawer, and I said, yes. I went over to my underwear drawer, took out all my underwear that I had clean, and I put them all on, and then put my pants on over the top. I was going to prepare myself for the judgment to come. They were not going to catch me unawares. I was going to have some cushion in my pants for what was about to happen. And I waited, prepared for that moment. And... You know, it didn't work. Uh, For some reason, Dad thought my bum looked a little bigger than it normally did, and uh, all that was removed, and uh, the punishment was still had. He was not fooled. But eight-year-old Benji was on to something. In light of coming judgment, in light of the wrath to come, I prepared myself. And the Apostle Paul seems to think that's a pretty good idea, too. In the light of Jesus Christ's return, He encourages us to prepare ourselves. Now, not out of fear 
like it was for me, fear of being hurt or punished, but out of hope that we were to prepare ourselves for the return of the king. A day of judgment, no doubt, but also a day of vindication and joy for his people. In our lesson from 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul addresses a question the Thessalonians seem to have related to him via Timothy. Paul has already sent Timothy to the Thessalonians to check on them. They're a brand new church. They're going through some difficult times. He sends Timothy to check on them. Timothy comes back with this report and no doubt some questions. Paul, what about the end? When is it going to come? When is it going to come? When is this day coming when God will judge these folks who are persecuting us and vindicate us? When? When will the end come? come. However, Paul is not exactly too enthused about staying on such a topic, and he quickly moves off of it. He's not concerned about diving down into when the end will come. So look with me, if you have a Bible, I know there are a few Bibles, turn with me to 1 Thessalonians 5. Paul quickly moves this question from when. Verse 1, chapter 5, 1 Thessalonians. Now concerning the times and seasons, the wind question, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. Paul does not care to engage in a conversation here about the timing of when the day of the Lord would come. He has already taught them everything they need to know. You hear that in his language. You have, you have no need to have anything written to you. You already fully know. You are already fully aware. Nevertheless, he indulges. He gives them a quick rehash. And here's the things he points. Three things about the coming day of the Lord. And we're going to go glide over them quickly too. It's unpredictable. It's like a thief in the night. A thief is not like your pest control man. He doesn't give you a two-hour window on Monday to tell you when he's going to be coming by. It's unpredictable. It's in the nighttime when we are unaware, when we're unprepared. The day of the Lord's unpredictable. It's also near. The day of the Lord is something that can suddenly happen. It's near to us. The whole scriptures march their way to the coming of Christ in the Gospels, to the, resu- to the crucifixion and the resurrection. There are clear signs that point the way. But after the resurrection and the ascension of Christ, the coming, second coming of the Lord runs as if it was a par- parallel course with us now. Never knowing, no clear sign about the wind, but always there, ready to suddenly break into our world and reveal Christ. So this is something that is near. It's unpredictable it's near and it's unavoidable. Like a pregnant woman who's deep in her, her pregnancy full term, she cannot avoid labor pains. They are coming. It's unavoidable. And that is all Paul wants to say on the matter of timing. It's unpredictable, it's near, and it's unavoidable. And of course, that never quite satisfies. Rather, Paul desires to shift the focus to answering a different question. And I believe this is the question, now this is, he, Paul doesn't give us a question, but I think this is the one he's answering. In light of the certainty of the coming day of the Lord, how do we live in the waiting? How do we prepare ourselves while waiting for the return, the sudden, imminent, unavoidable return of Jesus Christ? 
And Paul's answer in 1 Thessalonians 5, 1-11 is this. We wait by living lives marked by Christian vigilance. Vigilance you know, is a state of careful watchfulness. Often the definitions in English are watchfulness of danger or things that, are, things that, that may pose a threat. But it's a state of careful watchfulness. Paul encourages us to live our lives marked by Christian vigilance. And we'll look at what that is in two ways, or in two points. First, Christian vigilance is grounded in a firm knowledge that we are children of God. In Paul's language here, children of light. Children of the day. Paul uses the Hebraism, son of, which is translated here in the ESV, children. Children of, children of the day, children um, of, the, of the light. The phrase son of does not necessarily mean a biological relationship. You know, in Mark's gospel, Jesus refers to James and John as sons of thunder. And he's not saying that they were, you know, the thunder gave birth to them. Thunder is not their father or their mother. But he's saying that these men are sons of, they are marked by the characteristics or the nature of the things that they are related to. Right? They had a hot temper. They were loud, boisterous kind of folks. They were sons of thunder. So when Paul calls the Ephesians or the Thessalonians children of light, in contrast to the children of darkness, he's declaring to them the good word, the gospel word, that they are children of God. They possess the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Listen to Paul, the way he frames it in 1 Corinthians 4. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We are people transformed by the light of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Listen also to the way Paul frames this in Colossians 1.13. God, the Father, delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Isn't it good to be children of light? Children of the day. And Paul goes out of his way here. He's very redundant in a short way. He goes out of his way to make sure that the Thessalonians know who they are. They are the children of light. They are the children of the day. They are children of God. He knows that if the Thessalonians lose sight of the reality that they are God's children, and if they lose sight of the reality that they belong to the kingdom of his son, Jesus then they will be unable to live vigilant lives. They will be unable to stay awake. They will be unable to stay sober when the time requires such vigilance. He knows that the comforts, the pressures, the tensions, the antagonisms, and the potential hardships, the afflictions, the persecutions we face as Christians in this dark world will tempt us to live in a manner that denies God and ultimately leads some to fall away. That's his concern for them. That's what he said in in chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. Paul is communicating this profound yet simple truth. Behavior, what you do, how you live, reflects who you are and to whom you belong. Our behavior does not make us God's children, but it sure does reveal that we are God's children. Again, not to do a lot of stories about me as a child, but again, when I was growing up, uh, 
and began to spend the night over at friends' houses or uh, you know, overnight church trips, my dad would occasionally take me to the side and remind me, I didn't always realize why I needed to remind me, that I was a Davis. Benji, you're a Davis. I was like, yeah, I know. I got that. And of course, when he said that, he meant that there are certain expectations that go along with that name that you've been given. There are certain expectations about your behavior, the way that I would conduct myself at someone else's house or away on this church trip. My dad's logic was simple. A Davis acts like a Davis. There it is. I'm sure there were additional reasons for the various expectations, but those were not always explained. My dad kept it simple. A Davis acts like a Davis. A Davis lives like a Davis. I guess that could be good and bad for the Davises. This logic, though, is not far from Paul's own. Children of the day do daytime things. They stay awake. They stay sober. Children of God act like children of God. They act like God. Children of the night, children of darkness do nighttime things. They sleep. They get drunk. They're not alert. They're not vigilant. And this logic forms the basis of Paul's call that we, as Christians, practice a way of life that is defined by vigilance. We must firmly know who we are and to whom we belong, and we must live accordingly. Look at 1, Corinthians, or 1 Thessalonians 5, 6-7. Paul says, So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, since we belong to the day, let us be sober. For Paul, a new day, a new age began to dawn at Jesus' resurrection and ascension. Christians are people of this new day. They are people of this new age. They are people like the sons of thunder who are to be defined by the resurrection power of Jesus Christ that enlivens us to live the ways of God in the midst of a broken and dark world. That's the kind of people we are. We're people of this new dawn. Even though all around us is a world still marked by darkness, children of darkness all around, Paul encourages us to remind us, encourages us to be reminded of who we are, children of God, children of the kingdom of God, children of new creation. Paul calls Christians then to be vigilant until the sun rises fully and the new age is here at the return of King Jesus. The, vis- the vigilance envisioned here, the alertness, the watchfulness, the sobriety is manifested. It is revealed in our lives through virtuous living that reflects the light of the dawning of the kingdom of God, which is the light of the glory of Christ. We reflect. It's as if the sun is rising in the east and we are walking in that direction and the rest of the world, the children of darkness, have their back to it and they are walking this way. Our faces glow with the light of the morning sun. Our lives are to reflect. Reflect. That coming dawn, that new kingdom, the way of Jesus to those who are still in darkness 
And hopefully, Lord willing, with His Spirit, they turn around to see the King and repent. So that's the first thing. Christian vigilance is founded on a strong remembrance of who we are as children of God. Second, Christian vigilance is manifested in the courageous practices of loyalty, love, and hope. Or faith, love, and hope. Look with me at verse 8. But since we belong to the day, since we are day people, let us be sober. Let us do day things. And here's how he fleshes that out. Having put on the breastplate of loyalty or faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Paul changes metaphors here. He's been using these, this kind of contrast between night and day, light and darkness, and the various activities that are done in each of those realms. But now he moves the focus. He transitions a bit with a change of metaphor to this metaphor of military armament. And he wants to demonstrate what Christian vigilance looks like. What it looks like in action. He says it looks like a soldier who is on duty and therefore sober. A bad soldier is one who's drunk on duty. This is a soldier on duty who is sober and ready for action. Paul captures this idea of sober readiness, this idea of vigilance, as the donning of defensive armor, the breastplate and the helmet. The breastplate defended against frontal attacks, and the helmet, you know, it protects the most important thing of all, right? Your head. The use of defensive armor here was intentional and connected to this church's experience of pressure and affliction in Thessalonica. In chapter 3, Paul expresses his concern that this young church would be tempted to fall away because of these pressures. He is so concerned that he sends Timothy back to a city that just recently, just recently kicked them out and threatened to kill them. So you know this is serious. You know his concerns are, are, are heartfelt, and strong. He sends Timothy back and he says, this is what Timothy is to do. To establish and exhort you in the faith, in your loyalty. That no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction. Church, let me just pause there. Off script a bit. We are destined for affliction. There's no easy way of saying that. I hope, I hope you take Paul to heart when he writes these words to Thessalonians, no doubt common teaching to all the churches he went to. We have for a very long time become fat on our comforts and become subject to what Moses talks about in Deuteronomy 6 through 10. Beware when you have full bellies that you forget God. Beware that your wealth does not cause you to forget God, the one who gave you the power to get wealth. Paul says, for you yourselves know that we are destined for this. Now, Paul also says we're destined for salvation, so there is a much better side to this, but we are destined for this, this affliction. And we kept telling you this beforehand, that we were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass, 
And just as you know, for this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your loyalty. I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. Do you hear Paul's concern for their faith? They were facing significant backlash for their claim that Jesus is king. This is what it says in Acts 17. That Jesus is king and that he would return soon to establish his sovereign rule over all the earth. You think Caesar was happy about that? Some in their congregation most likely had already been killed or died from some, some abuses suffered given what we just encountered in the end of chapter 4. What happens to those folks who die in Christ? Because some have just died. Are they going to be disadvantaged when you return? So it's no surprise then that Paul exhorts them to armor up. Put on faith and love as a breastplate. Put on the hope of salvation as a helmet. In this, Paul uses the Greek word pistis. It's translated faith here in the ESV. However, I think in this context and throughout most of 1 Thessalonians, it's just best understood as loyalty. The noun pistis has a fairly large uh, range of meaning, from belief, like I believe in God the Father, a thing of belief, to trust, to faithfulness, to loyalty. It's this range of meaning that it has. And the way Paul talks about the strength, he desires for them to be strong and says he's already seen this strength in them. He desires that, their, that the Thessalonians' pistis would be strong. Their faith, their loyalty would be strong. He's almost certainly not referring there to the beliefs, to beliefs as such. In light of the affliction the Thessalonian church faced, Paul desires that their loyalty to God be strengthened. He was not concerned about their belief per se, though that is certainly important and potentially in view, but rather he is concerned with the whole package of their commitment to King Jesus and their complete trust in him. It is not that Paul was concerned that they no longer believe that Jesus would be king or is king, but that they may refuse to say it out loud. That they may refuse to confess it. That may, they may refuse to walk out of the guilds that had pagan deities associated with them. So Paul exhorts them to be vigilant by maintaining loyal commitment to King Jesus. Now for Paul... Faith and loyalty to King Jesus always manifests itself in love. Galatians 5, 6 lays it out clearly in a different context, though it applies here. For in Christ, Paul says, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but faith working through love. I can't help but think in the back of Paul's mind here, this connection of faith and love is the Hebrew word hesed. It's this notion, we don't even have a word in English that captures what it means it's this idea of covenant faithfulness or uh, covenant loyalty or covenant love or loving covenant faithfulness or loving covenant fidelity. It's this, it's this huge pregnant term that no doubt stands behind Paul here when he says that faith works itself out in love. Loyalty to King Jesus finds expression in self-sacrificial love. How will we know that we are loyal to King Jesus? In the final week before his crucifixion and resurre resurrection, Jesus takes the disciples aside to encourage them to live loyal lives of love and dedication to him. In John 13, Jesus says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, that you are loyal to me, not to some other rabbi, not to some other God, but loyal to me. 
because you have love for one for another. How will people know if you belong to Jesus? How will they know if you are, are faithful to him? How will they know if you are loyal? If you are loving God and loving your neighbor. And not just loving one another within the community. Paul in Ephesians says twice to love everyone, even those people who are afflicting you. Love all. And he says that clearly in 1 Thessalonians 5.13. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil. Can you imagine? Don't lash out. Don't lash back at them. But always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. That's how they'll know that you're loyal to me. Be vigilant, Paul says. Be a vigilant Christian. Put on the breastplate of loyalty to the king and work it out in love. Paul finally exhorts them then to put on the helmet, which is the hope of salvation. Look at verses 8 through 10 again. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of loyalty and love, and for the helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Paul certainly knew the sorts of fears that would creep into the mind, into the body of one suffering affliction for the sake of Jesus. And by reminding the Thessalonians that God has destined them for salvation and not wrath, he is affirming again their identity, who they are. They are the children of God. They have been transformed and redeemed by the Son of God. Almost certainly the tragic events that involved the death of some in their community made some wonder if God was on their side or against them or even maybe even on the throne. Paul directs their attention to the fact that their security is in and through Jesus who died on their behalf. Not only did he give his life for their salvation, but he will be present with them forever and he is at pains to say whether you are alive or dead, whether asleep or awake, you are alive, you live with Christ. There is no death for the Christian. It's always life and only life. Death cannot separate you from the loving presence of Jesus. God has destined this for you. COVID-19 cannot separate us from Jesus. Cancer cannot separate us from Jesus. The loss of our job does not separate us from Jesus. There is nothing in this world that can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, Paul tells us in Romans. And so the point of the warfare language in Paul and the rest of the Bible emphasizes this wider battle that's, verse, that's between good and evil. As Christians, we cannot drift through life just spending hours and days waiting to die and go to heaven. We must prepare ourselves. Maybe not in the way I prepared myself as an eight-year-old boy, throwing on a ton of underwear, but we must prepare ourselves. We must prepare ourselves because we are engaged in a conflict, as Paul says in Ephesians 6, against the rulers and against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. And just because the battle is not waged with tanks or guns or bombs doesn't make it any less serious or necessary. Indeed, it is even more serious and more necessary. According to Paul, the cosmic spiritual battle is the important one, and it is a contest in which all believers must partake. We are not called to be physically violent, but we are taught to engage in spiritual battle 
knowing the enemies and knowing the proper equipment to win the war. That proper equipment is courageous vigilance manifesting itself in loyalty and love and hope. Model soldiers know the enemy. They trust their training. They cooperate with their regiment. They obey their commander. They serve the king loyally and they live in a world hostile to the living God and his kingdom. Until the new heavens and new earth, the kingdom will stand, will still need soldiers committed to King Jesus and his reign. And we would do well then to ask, are we, as Christ's church, ready for battle? Do we know our enemies? Sin, injustice, evil, death, and the various manifestations here? Do we recognize it is the will of the king the Lord Jesus, that we fight against the dark night by courageously practicing vigilance through loyalty to him, through love for one another and for everyone, all motivated by a certain hope of salvation in Jesus Christ. Let us conclude this morning where Paul concludes in verse 11. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. This will require us as a people to engage in whole life catechesis, to live vigilant, virtuous lives courageously in the midst of a dark world. May God help us. And now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.